Now hear the word of the Lord from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinus was governor of Syria. And all went up to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Oh, hey, my name is Scott, and I am the director of operations here uh, at Sacred City Church, and it is my joy and privilege to bring the word this morning, and tomorrow's Christmas Day, y'all, come on, right? Oh, man, it doesn't get much better than this if we can gather twice in our preparation and our anticipation for Christmas today. Uh, I think it's fitting that a family would gather to start the day and end the day filled with this anticipation uh, because Christmas is the most beautiful story. Can I just be honest with you all quick about uh, what I'm bringing in this morning? I'm guessing that each and every one of us is bringing in a little something, uh, and, and, and it's not all anticipation for us, right? So uh, there's been some high highs and some uh, kind of low lows over the last couple of weeks, uh, but just a little snippet, even into just the last couple of days, maybe some of y'all, because, you know, it's, it's a Sunday, Christmas Eve is a Sunday, maybe y'all already started stealing some celebrations yesterday on your Saturday for Christmas. Uh, that was true uh, in the Gaskill side of our family, and so... Because of that, right, I saw this coming. I, I, I saw that all right, we're going to be celebrating with my family on Friday and Saturday. I'm going to be preaching on Sunday. I'm going to be celebrating Christmas Eve on Sunday night. We're going to celebrate with our family on Christmas. Uh, then after that, uh, we're going to celebrate Emily's family winters uh, in Arizona. They don't come back for Christmas, so we're celebrating with them for a little bit after that. Uh, we realized there was going to be this stretch of days, and if we were going to give our kids uh, our family Christmas present this year, uh, that we had to do it like ahead of time uh, because it wasn't going to fit. And reason being, the Christmas present that we gave them is living and active and we have to take care of it. We got them a puppy, all right? And so uh, anyway, this high, high, like uh, being able to tell the kids and, and we went and picked it out on, on Thursday night out of the litter, the one that we were getting uh, was this really fun moment. And, you know, I cried when I was telling them because I was so excited about it and I'm a crier. That's who I am. Uh, and so we're all excited about this puppy that's coming, you know, in January to our house. Uh, um, and then uh, we went and we celebrated with my family. And it was great. And don't get me wrong. Was, we had a lot of fun with our family. But my dad uh, has Parkinson's. And he's had it for quite a while. And um, 
yesterday uh, after, after lunch, in, in between meals, uh, we're kind of all sitting around doing what you do, you know, like as a family and uh, kicking over our feet and having, um, watching some football, doing stuff like that. And uh, my dad's just uh, eating some Chex Mix. And one of the kind of side effects or symptoms of Parkinson's is that it affects how your epiglottis works. And over a course of time, it's really hard uh, for you to be able to swallow and stuff like that. And he uh, gagged on this Chex Mix so hard that I was like sitting there trying to help him get it out. And I wasn't sure that my dad was going to make it through this Chex Mix, to be honest. And so uh, it's just been like that, okay? I just want to come real this morning. It's kind of been like that. We've had these high highs and celebration and these things. Uh, but the truth of this morning, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that he is true God and true man. And, 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 and the just beautiful truths in the song that we're going to look at this morning has been a big part of what God's used to lock me in and to kind of take uh, refuge in him in the midst of this season with these ups and downs. So uh, let me tell you what it is. For the last couple of weeks, right, we've been in this sermon series called Advent Songs. And uh, we've looked at come thou long expected Jesus. So come, O come, Emmanuel, and joy, joy to the world. And if you've been tracking with us, you know that uh, kind of historically, I think in the Anglican church, the tradition is that the, for the first couple of weeks of Advent, you really focus in on the second coming of Christ and this anticipation or arrival. That's what Advent means, right, the, uh, of Jesus, the second time when he's going to come back and he's going to make all things right and there's going to be no more tears and no more suffering and, and so there's some great hope right in there that we looked at for the first couple of weeks of Advent and then we turn this corner and for the third and fourth weeks of Advent today we're in the fourth week uh, we look at uh, the first coming of Christ and how uh, literally God sending his son Jesus from heaven down to earth to be born in a manger wrapped in swaddling claws changes everything just like it says on our wall out there and so that's what we're fixing to do this morning is talk about how Jesus came into this world was born of a virgin and he changes everything in our lives so this week I've been tasked with helping us gain a better understanding of the theology in the song Hark the Herald Angels Sing so that when we hear it, right, and we sing it, it has a more of an effect on our lives uh, than, you know, when a song comes on your playlist like Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire, right? Like, uh, there's some of these songs, y'all. There are some of these songs that are so pregnant with beautiful truths about our Savior that we have just got to dive even deeper to understand each and every word that we're singing, and as it turns out, y'all, I have a pretty strong personal connection with this song. And I had kind of forgot about it when Justin first asked me uh, to take this week. I actually tried to swap out weeks tonight with Pastor Alex. Uh, but come to realize, uh, I have a really strong personal connection with this song, okay? Back in the day, I'd say I was like maybe in third or fourth grade. I was a part of the Manchester United Methodist Junior Choir. All right, and uh, I was a pretty big deal. All right, I, I, I'll just tell you that uh, because I had the solo in uh, the Christmas uh, recital or concert that year. All right, I had the lead, uh, and I was destined for greatness until I wasn't. All right, uh, and so here's the deal: the the whole uh, thing was built around "Hark the Herald Angels Sing." The the play I had to look it up on Wikipedia uh, was called uh, "Where Is It?" Uh, "Hark the Herald Angel," a Christmas. Music 
musical drama for young voices, okay? This is what it says on Wikipedia, or maybe it was an advertisement I found. Uh, it says, music, it contains music that is fun and singable, as well as a humorous dialogue to communicate the Christmas event in a way that both children and adults will enjoy and anticipate. All right, here's the deal. This thing that I was a part of uh, is about this angel choir preparing to announce the birth of the Son of God. And there's this inquisitive young angel named Hark. That was me. All right, you see what they did there? Hark, they called him Hark, right? Uh, and Hark's filled with questions about this momentous event and God's plan, all right? And to be honest, y'all, I don't have the fondest memories of being Hark, the herald angel, all right? It was kind of embarrassing. Uh, I didn't really enjoy it that much. I think I did sing my heart out, right? Uh, but I think that this morning... It might be that God has me stumbling into Hark the Herald Angels Sing to talk about the theology here because he wants to go and totally redeem this song for me. And maybe he wants to do it for you this morning too, all right? So uh, if you would lean into that, we're just gonna look for God to change the way that we see and sing this morning. You see, the version of Hark the Herald Angels Sing that we sing today, uh, you might not know this, but it was forged in the heat of controversy. And each one of the turns in the controversy of this song has me thinking this morning. So I want to share that with you a little bit before we dive in, okay? The first controversy is around a slight change in lyrics, all right? This song was originally written in 1737 by the great hymn writer named Charles Wesley. This dude penned more than 4,000 hymns in his day. So as was probably normal for him, he woke up one morning. Uh, he's in his quiet, quiet time, right? And he started penning this, it says. History tells us he penned, Hark how all the welkin rings, glory to the king of kings. And as history tells us, the rest of it just came together right there in his quiet time. You know, dude just wrote another hymn. And those of you that know the hymn well have already started to pick up on what went down, right? Because those are not the words that we be singing this morning. You see, these lyrics are not quite the lyrics that we know in our hymn today. You see, first off, it says, Welkin, hark how all the welkin rings. And you're like, Scott, you had to read that wrong. That is not a word, Right? Uh, it's not a word that we're familiar with, at least. Welkin, let me educate you, literally means the vault of heaven makes a, long, or a loud noise. So the idea first penned by Charles Wesley was that when heaven sends forth a loud pronouncement, the entire power of the king is revealed. That's pretty powerful, right? So he said it to his own unique tune Charles Wesley had, Hark how all the welkin rings. And as history tells us, it picked up in his church and then went throughout the Methodist movement and it got caught on pretty quickly. But here's the first controversy, all right? He had a college buddy named George Whitfield. And George Whitfield picks up his, his boy Charles' song and he publishes his own version of it. You see, if you don't know anything about George Whitfield, he, he was uh, an open-air preacher, and it was often in these informal gatherings uh, that revival movements would soon, it's out of them that uh, revival movements soon exploded in the United States. You see, when Whitfield published Wesley's Christmas song, he changed the words without consulting the writer. I don't know about you, but that seems like a bad idea, all right? 
He didn't ask permission. He just asked. He, I don't even know if he asked forgiveness, let's be honest. Uh, so he just changes the words up a little bit. And here's the new first line. Hark, the herald angels sing. And uh, as history tells us, uh, when Wesley read the new first line, he was filled with rage, all right? Wesley was convinced that nowhere in the Bible did angels sing about the birth of Christ. Yet because of Whitfield's change in one line today, come on, now you know that's hitting you hard, because most people today believe that angels were singing about the birth of Jesus in Luke 2.13 when it says a multitude of the heavenly host, that's spiritual beings not normally seen who watch over man, that's what Charles Wesley would say, appeared with the angel praising God and saying, you see it in the text? Uh, just, it says saying, I'm, I'm checking again, okay? Uh, and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. You see, as long as he lived, the story says, Wesley never sang this extra version of his song. Yet even if the writer of this song refused to acknowledge the change, millions around the world soon embraced singing angels in sermons, in music, and even in junior choirs in the Methodist church. You see, the second controversy doesn't have this old schoolboy slant to it, and it doesn't have any authors filled with rage, okay? But it's helpful for us to understand this hymn a little bit more. The melody that we know today, right? The notes that this is put to, as Hark the Herald Angels Sing, was not written first for congregational singing or even to honor God, all right? The melody was written by this dude named Felix Mendelssohn, and he composed a cantata for the anniversary of the invention of the printing press to honor Johann Gutenberg, the famous Bible printer. Okay, and then there's this other guy named uh, William Cummings that in 1855, he combines Mendelssohn's Gutenberg tribute with Whitfield's rewrite, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and the end result was a dramatic change unimagined by either composer. Here's the best line that I've written or read about all this this week. Although neither Wesley nor Mendelssohn would probably have approved of this combination of lyric and melody, it now seems appropriate that the words of a man who lived to evangelize the entire world, right, Charles Wesley, for Christ, should be tied to a tribute written for a man who invented a method of mass-producing God's word for all of uh, the earth to read. Like, it, it just seems fitting that those two things would be combined here, right? And so, yes, these controversies are very real, but they're a bit different, aren't they, than the controversy uh, in our Christmas gatherings uh, around this weekend? See, I wish that the controversy at the table yesterday uh, at my parents' house was a back and forth about uh, right theological lyrics of a Christian, uh, you know, Advent song. I wish that was the case, but that's not what we were going back and forth about. You see, uh, my family uh, in November had the privilege of going to see Pentatonics perform uh, in, uh, over in Moline, right? And so we're not talking about the lyrics in Hark the Herald Angels thing yesterday. Uh, you know, it's on my mom's CD player, you know, it's like old school CD player got five discs in it you know it's rotating around all of a sudden pops on one of those pentatonic songs and yes we had this experience together my mom went and my sister's family and, and our family and uh, they start singing uh, what's that song called uh, Christmas is uh, what? what is it yeah that's Christmas to me 
And the whole point of this song, y'all, that they sing is that basically we live in a postmodern world, right? And we get to decide what's right and wrong. So why wouldn't we also get to decide what Christmas is, right? Christmas couldn't be about a baby being born in a manger that happens to be the son of God sent from heaven. Uh, It's actually just whatever you think it is, it can mean that to you. And whatever you think it is, it can mean that to you. That's Christmas to me. And so, uh, you know, like as I usually do, I stick my foot in my mouth in the conversation at the table. I'm saying these things with black and white vigor, you know, and this is the controversy happening, I think, more in our day today, isn't it? Instead of a back and forth about, oh, I wonder uh, if this is the right lyric, if it lines up best with Luke chapter 2, actually, the controversy isn't about that at all. It's about whether Christmas really is a historical thing that connects to our historical Christ come into the world. You see, Hark the Herald Angels Sing is part of that remarkable moment that we remember back in the day. Anybody still watch It's a Wonderful Life? Yeah, you know, do you know the moment, right? They're, like there's a little girl sitting at the piano and she's playing and, and all the community is coming in and, and generosity outpouring their generosity toward the Bailey family. And in the background, the whole of the place is singing Hark the Herald Angels Sing, right? Like old school, this, this song meant something. Uh, the next place that you catch it, if you're catching it in, uh, in, in theater is, or in movies or whatever, uh, is in the Charlie Brown Christmas classic. Anybody on that one, right? And, and what you see, if you watch the version that was original, okay, the way back one, at the end, all the characters are singing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. But this is where the controversy lies today. Did you know that that got edited out? Today's version of the Charlie Brown Christmas uh, story doesn't actually have them singing it. Instead, they just hum it so that we don't have to hear the words about Jesus anymore at the end of our special. You see, this song is one of the most memorable Christmas songs for many of us who've grown up in or around the church because it's filled with rich truth about Jesus. And I tell you what, we're gonna talk about it today. We're not gonna talk around it today. But rather than get stuck in this controversy, this morning I think God wants each one of us to hear because Jesus came as the newborn king, we must give him glory. My sermon title for this morning is Glory to the Newborn King. And as we look at this Advent song and many passages today, I want us to see how the birth of Christ a couple of thousand years ago affects every aspect of our lives today. And because we're singing three verses, if you, if you already noticed this morning, we sang three verses, I'm gonna pull out three main points to follow along with those three verses as we go this morning. Will you pray with me? God, we need to be reminded. We're uh, forgetful people. Um, Paul Tripp calls us gospel amnesiacs. We forget the good news of the gospel time and time again. And although Christmas is something that we are incredibly familiar with, we're familiar with uh, a fat man in a red suit. We're familiar with opening gifts. We're familiar with uh, ice skating and uh, icicles and all these other things. God, I think at times we become too familiar with the baby in the manger. And so, God, I pray that you would break us out of that familiarity this morning, uh, that you would work in and through uh, me this morning, that you would speak through me, that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that long to obey you so that we'd be filled with awe of the gift of Christmas, Jesus born in a manger in Bethlehem. Pray us in your heavenly name. 
Amen. All right, here's the deal. My first point for this morning, uh, coming with that first verse of Hark the Herald Angels Sing, is this. Whether or not the angels sang at all should not matter to us, y'all. The implications are the same. Whether or not the angels sang, this is a song that we are meant to sing, all right? Open up Luke chapter two with me, and let's dive into this. I remember my grandfather every Christmas opening up right here to Luke chapter two, and this is how we would start our Christmas dinner. So let me start, uh, I'm just going to read it again because I want to start our dinner together in God's word, all right? Luke chapter two, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. That means she was pregnant, y'all. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear and the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying... Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. Y'all just hear the lyrics? Like, does it help that we sang it this morning and, and then we're looking at this text and that's why I want to read it again because it's like, peace on earth and mercy mild. You know, I can't sing, right? I was hard, right? But uh, God and sinners reconciled. Join the triumph of the skies, we sang. With angelic hosts, proclaim. He got it that right on that, at that point, right? Proclaim. Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark the herald angels say... Glory to the newborn king, right? To be crystal clear, I believe that uh, it doesn't matter if the angels sang it or not. There are truths that are so beautiful, so profound, that the only response in our hearts should be to sing and proclaim them time and time again. You see, to be crystal clear, I believe this is a song that we should not only sing at Christmas time, but we should sing it throughout our whole lives. You see, I'm not even one of those dudes, y'all, that, that advocate for turning on Christmas songs before Thanksgiving. That's not me. But I think that the truths in Luke chapter 2 are so profound that we should not box them up, put them in a little, you know, container and just save them for this little season here. They should be proclaimed and sung throughout the year. You see, what Charles Wesley may have thought uh, was the greatest controversy about his song, whether or not the angel sang in the first place, it's not the greatest controversy. 
I think the greatest controversy here is that many people around the world celebrate Christmas year after year and their singing is not at all informed by the glorious truth of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Many people around the world sing phrases like veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity. They don't even know what they're singing And worse yet, their lives do nothing to declare that God left heaven and came to earth, that God humbled himself and came in the form of a servant to rescue sinners like you and me. Church, the Christmas story is filled with such great news in our text that it should matter to each and every one of us, no matter if the angels sang it or not. It's such good news that we should take up what it says uh, in Joy to the World last week, right? Uh, Men, their songs employ, and we should be singing it day in and day out. But we've made this point, okay? So I'm going to move on to point number two, because I feel like we've been making this point for a couple of weeks. And point number two is, is real pregnant, more pregnant maybe than Mary, okay? And here's point number two. Jesus is incarnate deity, and this should be displayed through the way that his church lives. All right, think about this. Uh, we're going to be talking about the incarnation the rest of the morning, and I've been thinking about this for like a month, okay? And uh, here's the deal. Few illustrations even come close to doing the incarnation justice, Okay? They, they don't even come close. I've, I've heard it said that the incarnation is like a world-renowned musician. You know, you, you've heard this before, right? A world-renowned musician who usually plays in symphony halls filled with tens of thousands of people taking their instrument, right? Going down into the subway, putting out one of those cups, uh, wearing, uh, you know, some sort of costume to cover up their real identity and just playing their music for people right there with the normal people passing by, Right? I've heard it said that that's, uh, that, that's an illustration for the incarnation. I've, I've heard it said that the incarnation is like one of those reality TV shows where uh, the CEO of, of a company, right, takes off his $10,000 suit. He puts on uh, a janitor's uniform and he goes down into one of the buildings that he owns and he cleans the floors for him. And people are just passing by thinking that he's the janitor, Right. I've heard it said that the incarnation is like uh, that movie, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, (laughs) y'all with me, Uh, where a dude like is shrunk down to really little size and he goes out in the backyard and he walks with the ants and, and the bees buzzing around, right? But all of those illustrations fall short of the magical, magnificent reality of the incarnation, You see, God, the one who is and who was and who is to come, the creator of the known universe left heaven and came to earth to be an incarnate deity, incarnate. So in like carne meat, in, in, in the meat, in the flesh. God descended, he, he condescended, he lowered himself to be born into this world as a baby. Think about it this way. When you meet a new person, right, you're going to ask them about where they're from and you're going to ask them about their identity. You might even go to the people around them and ask them what they're like, right? If you were to do that with Jesus, almost all of the answers to those questions would be found in the doctrine of the incarnation. You see, this historic doctrine can be boiled down to a few phrases that the church codified in the Athanasian creed around the 6th century, 
See, I think this matters. I think it matters today that Christmas is connected to real history, that the real truths that we sing actually are connected to our real world and our real history. So in the sixth century, Athanasian, uh, Athanasius help us codify this with these three phrases. Christ is true God, Christ is true man, and lastly, Christ is one person with two natures. Let's think about these quickly. Christ is true God. Y'all, we've spent the last couple of months together in the Gospel of John, and if it has not gotten across yet in the Gospel of John that he's true God, I'm not sure I'm gonna be able to get it across this morning, but see it in our text this morning. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I don't know about y'all, but this doesn't happen every day up in my neck of the woods. This is a big deal. There's angels proclaiming this. And he's given multiple names, right? Savior, Christ, Lord. Church, God sent messengers from heaven to proclaim that the baby born in Bethlehem, the baby born of Mary, the baby born in a manger and wrapped in swaddling cloths is none other than Christ the Lord. And then suddenly, a heavenly host was praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Y'all, when the second person in the Godhead became a man, God didn't compromise himself and change into something less than he was. Jesus, still in that manger in Bethlehem, was the image of the invisible God. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He was the exact imprint of his nature, even as the newborn in a manger. You see, this Christmas, we need to stand in the truth that the baby born in a manger was and is true God. Amen? Second is this. Christ is true man. This is what you see at the beginning of our text. Go with me again. In those days, the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Y'all, I don't know why you would put all that in there if it wasn't real, right? This is not how you write myths. This is how you write history. Jesus was not almost human. He was fully human. He was born at a specific time in recorded history when Caesar Augustus was in charge and the governor was Quirinius. He was born in a specific historical town called Bethlehem. He was born to specific parents, Mary and Joseph are their names. You can even check their lineage. It's all over the Bible, okay? His mom was pregnant for nine months and when the time came, he had a natural birth. Pretty sure there was no C-sections going on up in that manger, all right? Natural birth. I've heard it said this, that Jesus' conception was extraordinary, but the rest of his physical development was pretty ordinary. It was human, you might say. You see, this Christmas, we need to stand in the truth that the baby born in the manger was true man. Amen? And the thing is, the thing that ties those two truths together is this truth, that Christ is one person with two natures. One author wrote this, the relation of Christ's natures to his person is mysterious, but it's important. 
Here's why this is important in the words of uh, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, right? If we fail to recognize the unity of Christ's person, we might see Jesus veiled in flesh with, with just a little bit of God frosting on him. Or, or we might see him as deity with, with just a, a little bit of flesh, kind of like a man. Or some weird combination of the two. But the truth is, Jesus is one Christ with both a human nature and a divine nature. And these natures do not bleed together. This is what theologians call the hypostatic union. Family, when we think about the Christmas story, when we think about the Christmas story, we must consider how pregnant this wonderful story is. Not just with a virgin in Bethlehem, but pregnant with truth that reveals to us so much about the identity of Jesus Christ. But the place that I want to land this morning is in the application of these truths. You see, the incarnation tells us a lot about the identity of Jesus. And when we rightly believe who he is, then it should have a profound effect on who we are and what we do. You see that? Here it is. Uh, the, my third point, and this is from the fourth verse of this song. We only sing three, but we substitute the fourth one for the third one. Okay? That's what we do around here. Uh, is filled with profound implications of the incarnation. I don't know about y'all, but uh, I didn't grow up singing uh, this last verse that we sang this morning, and we're going to sing again. Uh, some people refer to it as the fourth verse, like I said. Uh, we may not be as familiar with this verse, but we need to be just as familiar with the truths found in it, because this is where the truths of the incarnation start to press into our day-to-day -day lives. This is where we start to realize that Jesus changes everything. And so there are tons of ways that the incarnation can get pressed into our lives. And I just want to touch on three of them before we head home. Because it's Christmas Eve, right? Here's the deal. The first one is this. The incarnation shows us the hum humility of God. Y'all, we confess this together. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 9 with me. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Jesus, the one who is true God, humbled himself. And think about the, the verbiage in this text. Jesus emptied himself. Jesus took on the form of a servant. Jesus humbled himself. The incarnation is a premier example of how Jesus humbled himself. He humbled himself by becoming a baby in the uterus of a poor teenage girl. And then he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. A death, by the way, that he did not deserve. But one that he endured so that any one of us that's willing to humble ourselves and put our hope and trust in him could experience eternal life so that we could be saved or forgiven and adopted into the family of God. God, I wonder what if this Christmas and every other day for that matter, what if we were to do just what this text says and put on the mind of Christ? What if we were to sing this song with vigor and believe in our hearts that he is indeed the incarnate deity? 
And that when he put on flesh, that he literally condescended, left heaven, humbled himself, emptied himself, came in the form of a servant to serve. And what if when we remembered that he did that, that we received the gift of the Holy Spirit to enable us to not only receive Jesus' humility, but to be able to extend it to others? What if we didn't merely look to our own interests this, this week? What, what instead of thinking about uh, the presents that I'm going to unwrap? What if uh, I'm less, less thinking about just what I'm going to eat, you know, and all the good, good Christmas goodies, and what I'm going to do over the next few days? What if we also considered the interests of others and put on the mind of Christ to humbly go and serve. I wonder how it would make our, our parents and our children and our siblings and our cousins and our aunts and uncles Christmas celebrations different if we were to come into those gatherings with that mindset, with the mindset to serve and to humble ourselves so that Christ would be exalted. So the first truth of the impl or implication of the incarnation is that uh, the incarnation shows us the humility of God and that should be seen in our lives. Second is this, the incarnation reveals the sympathy of God. I'm gonna go to two texts in Hebrews that I absolutely love. Hebrews chapter two, verses 17 to 18 say, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. It's speaking of Jesus here. He had to be made like us in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's to make a, an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Y'all, Jesus had to be made like us. He had to be a true man so that... When we're tempted, we can lean into him who has been tempted. It also says in Hebrews chapter four, verses 15 and 16, if you flipped a couple of pages, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Y'all, this idea that Jesus was made like us is repeated here, right? He's one who in every respect, in every respect, he had to be created like us and he had to be tempted like us. Because Jesus was born of a woman like us, because Jesus put on flesh like us, because Jesus was made to be like us in every respect, he is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. He is able to sympathize with each and every one of us, no matter how you're being tempted He's able to sympathize with you because he was tempted, yet he didn't give in to sin. Translation, God gets you. God understands your pain. But the sympathy of Christ also has implications on the way that we live as followers of Christ, right? Jesus changes everything. This is how my man Paul Tripp, with his beautiful mustache, says it in Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. He says, our experience of sympathy is usually limited to feeling sorry for someone and being thankful that we're not in the same boat. But sympathy here in this text in Hebrews means to be moved by what has moved someone else 
Christ's sympathy is so strong that our problems become his. This is much more than feeling sorry for someone in a tough spot. It's understanding what it's like to live in the middle of someone else's circumstances, coupled with the desire to do whatever's in our power to help them out. Y'all, if Jesus was both true God and true man, and he could sympathize with us and our weaknesses and our temptation, then how much more can we, who are just men and women, be able to sympathize with the men and women around us as they struggle with temptation to sin, as we struggle with temptation to sin and our weaknesses? What if rather than passing by the next encounter you have with the sufferer, right? Think about uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. What if rather than passing by these sufferers that we encounter this Christmas season, because we have received sympathy through Christ, shown to us through the incarnation, what if then we were able to then extend that sympathy to that sufferer? What if we got committed to walk alongside of our fellow sufferers and our fellow, uh, uh, our fellow human beings being tempted to sin? Because Jesus has shown us sympathy and he's rescued us from suffering and provided us an eternal home with no more tears one day. Okay, so the, so the incarnation uh, shows us the humility of God. Uh, it reveals the sympathy of God. Here's the last one. The incarnation manifests the love of God. This is real simple in one verse. 1 John 4, 9. Uh, 1 John 4, 8. I learned that at the United Methodist Church back in the day. God is love. Put that one to memory, right? 1 John 4, 9 after that. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Y'all, this is the incarnation right here. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that he sent his only son into the world in that manger in Bethlehem. Y'all know what it means to make something manifest? I'll look it up in Webster's Dictionary to make it real clear for us this morning. It means to make evident or certain by showing or displaying. In other words, the love of God was made certain among us. It like was proved for us. He like left heaven, came to earth, so you would have no questions about how much God loves you through the incarnation. You see, if you're here this morning and you're questioning God's love for you, my challenge would not be to look over here at, you know, that's Christmas for you and try and redefine it for yourself. My challenge would be to dive even deeper into the truths of Christmas and see in it the incarnate deity. Dive into him and his love for you. It will be made manifest for you. But church, if you understand the incarnation, if you are a Christian this morning, then I challenge you to live out the rest of this verse. You see it? In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world. What is it? So that we might live through him. Family, the marvelous thing about the incarnation, the most marvelous thing at least, is not that Jesus set a, an example for us to follow that he got down on our level, that he put on flesh so that we could see what God was like. He did set a great example for us, don't get me wrong. But the most marvelous thing about the incarnation is that in putting on flesh, Jesus was able to be this perfect spotless lamb who was sacrificed for the forgiveness of our sin so that going forward, we could live through him. 
The Christian life is not one that we live as free agents trying to grunt it out and do all this list of things that God has told us to do. That is not what the Christian life is. The Christian life is one that is saved through faith in Jesus and now in our position as people who have been adopted into the family of God, who have been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son, that now in him we live in and through him and he empowers us to live the way that he's called us to live. And so we cannot be a humble people on a consistent basis. We cannot be a sympathetic people on a consistent basis. We cannot even manifest the love of God on a consistent basis in our own strength. That's not possible. But what this text says is that we do it in and through Jesus. We receive our identity that we've been given in him. We hide our lives in Christ. And as we lean into him as our refuge and our strength, he will empower us to be a humble, sympathetic, loving people that would make certain the love of Christ for the watching people around us. Amen? You see, living through Jesus looks like living by faith in Jesus. Living through Jesus looks like living in the love of the Father the way that Jesus did. And living through Jesus looks like living by the same power that rose Jesus from the dead, namely the power of the Holy Spirit. Sacred City, you know what the most repeated line is in the song that we're talking about this morning? It's simply this, glory to the newborn king. Glory to the newborn king. That seems kind of foreign, right? Why would you give glory to a baby unless that baby is true God, unless that baby is true man, and unless his, the union of those two natures is such a beautiful and profound thing that we would be singing of it a couple of thousand years later. Glory to the newborn king. Let me put it to you straight. In the United States, during the month of December, it can be real easy to become too familiar with this baby in a manger. You drive around, you see it in somebody's front yard. Oh, look, there's a baby. It's got some shepherds around it and a goat, you know? Y'all, we need to be a people that shake off this familiarity, that move past this familiarity, that study even to understand the depths of this profound truth that is the incarnation because I believe those truths will not only inform us, but they will form us into a people that will give glory to the newborn king. Amen? All right, church, here's where we're gonna make a turn. One of the ways that Christians have given glory to the newborn king since the resurrection of Jesus Christ is through receiving the Lord's Supper. And this symbolic meal originating from Jesus' last supper with his disciples, we strengthen and express our trust in him as we eat and drink with our brothers and sisters in Christ. The Lord's Supper is this outward and visible sign of the grace shown to us in the death of our Savior. As we share in bread and, and wine together, we're invited to feed on him in our hearts by faith and with thanksgiving. We're faced again with God's love for the unworthy and are strengthened by faith in, those, in, the, in the one whose body was given and whose blood was shed for us. So as we partake in the Lord's Supper this morning, let's remember our newborn king who has come and celebrate that he will come again. Will you pray with me? God, I want us to be a people 
whose lives are formed by you to be a people that bring glory to this newborn king. Thank you for the profound historical truth that Jesus came in the form of a baby born of a virgin in Bethlehem, that Jesus is true God, that Jesus is true man, and that he has come for us. He's come to save us from our sin. He's come to adopt us into his family. And he's come, here it is, to manifest the love of God, to prove the love of God to us, that we would be insured of the love of God because he was willing to leave heaven and come into this broken world to show us that love. God, I pray this morning that those truths would uh, drop deeper and deeper in our hearts. And Father of mercy, uh, we thank you for the gift of this bread that we're about to partake of, which we confess provides us with the body of your son, Jesus Christ. We ask you to enable us to eat of it in faith and to be made more fully members of his heavenly body through Christ our Lord. Father of mercies, thank you for the gift of this wine, which we confess provides us with the blood of your son, our savior. We ask you to enable us to drink of it in faith and to be conformed more and more to the image of his death through Christ our Lord. Amen.